Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. My name is Taylor, and today I'm speaking with the authors of White Women, everything you already know about your own racism and how to do better. This book was recently released, and it's basically women of color talking about their experience working with white women who consider themselves allies and how white supremacy and racism can still creep up in that work and how white women can better be allies and move from being allies to accomplices. These authors work on a project called Race to Dinner, which is an initiative where people can host dinner parties and have honest, authentic conversations around racism. And this book is just a compilation of their experience running those dinners. And we'll learn a little bit about their thoughts on why they wrote this book, why they thought it was important, and more thoughts about how white women can be better accomplices to the anti-racist movement. So we'll go ahead and jump in. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited for this conversation. Let's get into it. My first question for you both is, what inspired you to write this book? Why now? Syra ran for office in 2018 against a longtime Democratic incumbent. Her whole form was anti-racism. So every time she gave a speech, a talk, white women would line up to talk to her. And what they each wanted to say is, not me. I'm not racist. And Syra entertained this because she was courting votes. So she would take these white women to breakfast, lunch, dinner, coffee, cocktails. She'd always pick up the tab. And she was paying a babysitter to keep her two young children while she did this. So a friend of mine said, you know what, Regina, I'm done with Syra. She hates white people. But if you can get her to go to lunch with me, because I worked on Syra's campaign. Before the campaign, I didn't know Syra. So I go to Syra and I say, this woman wants to go to lunch with you. And Syra goes, Regina, I'm not doing that anymore. But if your friend wants to host a dinner, invite her white lady friend. And you do it with me. We can do that. Yeah. Just as an aside, the straw that broke that Karen's back, the thing that precipitated her to say that I hate all white people is that I said that Beto O'Rourke was a white savior. And I said that I would have voted for him if I lived in Texas and I donated to his campaign because multiple things can and are true. But that's what set her off. So we had the dinner. And it was like full white woman Broadway musical, crying, shaking, you know, arms folded, eye rolling, all of it. And I just posted about it on Facebook the next day and it just went fully viral. Hundreds of women, I want to do this dinner. I want to do a dinner. I want to do a dinner. And Regina and I were like, we educate white women for free all the time. Why don't we have a, have a business? And Regina came up with the genius name Race to Dinner. And that day... Patty Ivan Speck, a white woman in LA who had been following my congressional campaign, reached out and said, I want to do a documentary on your work with these dinners. And we were like, sure. Yeah. And not only did she do it, 
She did it spectacularly well. And Deconstructing Karen premiered in Canada in September and it premieres in all over the world, including the US on November 24th. So we will send over links for that, Taylor. And we think Black, Indigenous and Brown folks will love seeing that on Thanksgiving Day. And we think that white folks will love slash hate to see it on Thanksgiving Day, but it'll be really interesting and exciting nevertheless. We dedicated our book. Our book is to all Black, Indigenous, Brown, and non-white girls, women, and non-binary identifying folks who are sick and tired of white women's bullshit. Probably one of the, like, the best dedication. I read the book and I was just like, wow. I got on this like anti-racist book kick and every time I read one, I got kind of exhausted. Like, Oh, like another one for white people. Like, yes, because that's who needs to hear the message. But this one felt different in that it was just so like real. It's like everything I want to say. So I really definitely enjoyed the book. And one of the topics that it's in the book is cancel culture. And in one of the chapters about silence, just like one of the reasons like white people, white women particularly remain silent is because they don't want to get canceled because people are quick to publicly cancel racists. Do you think that cancel culture is an effective form of accountability? Why or why not? And what role do you think cancel culture plays in white feminism? First of all, cancel culture does not exist for white people. Cancel culture exists for the three of us can be canceled at any moment, right? But let's use Leah Michelle as an example. The white woman from from Glee comes out, you know, all these bitches are posting their black boxes and all, you know, they're very brave black boxes and and BLM this and that in the summer of 2020 whenever all the white people discovered systemic racism. And it comes that a black actress, you know, saw her tweet, quote tweeted it and was like, funny that you suddenly care about black lives based on how you traumatize me on the set, right? And then all these Black, Latina, Asian actors were like, she did that to me. She did that to me. Next thing you know, oh no, boo-hoo, Leah Michelle. Leah Michelle's been canceled. Y'all know what Leah Michelle's doing right now? Yeah. She's starring on Broadway. Mm-hmm. She is starring on Broadway. So that's what cancel culture looks like for white people. You go from being an open and notorious racist to getting a starring Broadway role. There's so many others. White men. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Joe Biden has been accused of all sorts of things. He's the president. So it's a myth. That's what cancel culture is for white people. There's no accountability. What cancel culture does for black and brown people is ruin people's lives for basically nothing. So it's not accountability. It's punitive. It's penal. It's criminal. It's an extension of prison for black and brown people. So no, there is there is no cancel culture for white people. That's a white myth. Definitely since another book. Would love to read about that. This is the first kind of perspective that I've heard around cancel culture. White men are never held accountable. Look at Brett Favre. And he's back back in the clubs. So how are we going to cancel a white dude? It's winning Emmy Awards. You know what cancel culture is for white people? It's called promotions. Like they say, any press is good press. For white people. For white Yeah, for white people. Yes. Look at Andrew Gillum in Florida. Yeah. Like, what happened yeah. to him? Any excuse they can, any excuse to get Black people who have kind of promised to get rid of us. Yeah. Exactly. Again, referencing your chapter about, like, white silence. Oh, I don't want to get canceled. So the fear is not based on any real... 
what they're really afraid of is losing whites. So, you know, they could care less what we do. Just, you know, let them get invited to the next Mar-a-Lago party. Yes. So we talked about the role of mobility and whiteness. And you wrote this book for white women. If you want to elaborate on your dedication, how do you envision women and BIPOC women using this book? Well, I think they've told us. They have told us straight out, I feel affirmed. I feel like is as a conversation. You know, if they're getting ready to have a hard conversation with human knowledge, I am so happy. And the way they're going to use it, this is just one of many. This is from a South Asian woman was inspired by you, Regina, in your book to draw some firmer boundary lines during today's meeting with HR and that other teacher. It was uncomfortable and necessary. That's what we're hearing. Regina and I are going to start doing regular Zooms with Black, Indigenous, and Brown women. Last night, it was 10 from Canada and the U.S. And, and they said, we saw this movie or read this book, and, and we feel motivated to actually have these radically honest white women in our communities. We're fed up. And now we have a tool. People are saying they're just giving the books to their colleagues. And they're like, we're done. This says everything that we've ever wanted to say. And this is you. This is actually you. We are delighted that white people are reading it and loving it and learning something from it. I had a school parent teacher conference and she said, I'm halfway through your book. And I said, are you having a little bit of a hard time? And she paused. She goes, a little bit. I'm having a lot of bit of a hard time. And she goes, can I just stop being a professional for a minute? I mean, shit. <laughs> My God, we're just, we're like bullish. And I was like, yes. And we all know it. Yeah. And so she, she just said, I have to tell you, I was terrified of reading this. And now I feel like it's a gift. Like it feels like a gift for us to be given a chance to do better. So we're getting that from white women, yep. but we're really getting the, oh my God, thank you from black and brown women. Yeah. There was, there was one woman and she said, now, you know, I'm serious if I post in my bonnet. And she said, look right here. She said, she said, but it's the truth. I love that like experience of like women of color just being like feeling passionate and emboldened by the use to like call out the bullshit. Outside of like my work with the feminist book club, I work in a nonprofit, which is a miracle. It exists all on its own. It's ran women of color, but it's still like, okay, this organization ran by women of color for women of color for silence. We're in the world of nonprofit and still experiencing all of the said white nonsense that is like dominating the nonprofit world and how we navigate through all of that. What was it like? Um, You included a lot of firsthand accounts from women of color and how they have been personally affected by white women. What was it like collecting and compiling these stories? And why did you think it was important to include other voices of women of color? Well, you know, we're all fed up. We, our experience is universal. You know, there is not a woman who is not white who has not experienced white women's nonsense. So people want to just tell their stories. They wanted to share. It gives us solidarity. We all know what happens when we say anything about white culture is we are the problems, right? We're angry, we're divisive. So to do an end run around this is not the Siren Regina problem show is we were like, no, we're going to actually show that this is systemic and that it's not personal and it's not just black women. 
It's not just Latina women. It's not just indigenous women. It's not just Asian women. We literally interviewed all in different parts of the country, in different jobs. The Black woman in New York City has the same story as the Indian woman in Florida, who has the same story as the indigenous woman in Denver, who's on city council versus a chef. Different jobs, different cities, different races, same bullshit. And so it shows that it's systemic. And the system that we're talking about is white womanhood and how working with white women is toxic across the board. There's a very prominent white woman who didn't want to blurb the book early on. And she said it was that she said she felt attacked throughout. She got to that chapter. It felt like she had been fully ganged up on by women of color. And we're like, it's so interesting. We wouldn't be able to tell you about how it feels to be ganged up on. That's been all of our experiences. Here's their deal. They equate their feelings. You made me feel bad. You hurt my feelings with our actual pain and suffering. It ain't the same thing, girl. Go take your feelings and go sit down somewhere and shut up. Learn to manage your feelings as a grown-ass person. Just like you manage your health, just like you manage your jobs, just like you manage your household. And it's like so funny because oppression just wires your brain differently. I find the most growth in things that make me like really like look at my reflection and be like, oh, like, I don't like that. I don't like that. This is what I need to like grow and develop as a person and doing that shadow work. But like the people who feel like, oh, like my feelings were heard and I'm ganged up on, like you're avoiding that hard work of like changing for the better. White women do not want to be uncomfortable at all except the ones who are committed to their own personal growth. And that's, you know, maybe a little bitty slice, but they're there. There are people who, look, we're in a very dire time right now. And you, you, you can't just sit idly, which a lot of people are doing. By sitting idly, you're choosing a side and you're choosing the wrong side of history. I think that's what's happening is there are quite a few people who are like, oh my God, like this is dire and I need to actually unfuck myself in order to be on whatever the right side of history is. And we're seeing that. That's why this book has really taken off so fast. The shooters in these mass school shootings are predominantly young white men. The people they're shooting are young white children. And white women haven't stopped the nonsense about guns. Yeah. It's that science. Well, I don't want to make any waves. And we know it. I tell them, we know. Y'all are buying those guns to protect yourselves from us. We know. Actually, did you find that writing this book was a cathartic experience for the two of you? What have you learned about yourselves in writing this book? I mean, this is not about the book. This is not about the movie. This is not even about like our programs. This is about a movement of radical honesty. Nothing can change until everybody is radically honest about their place in the racial ecosystem, period. That includes me being radically honest that I have non-Black privilege. On the ecosystem, I'm above the two of you, right? And so white people sit above me. I sit above, you know, darker-skinned South Asians, darker-skinned everybody, so Black people. I can't do anything about that until, I can't do anything to deconstruct my anti-Blackness until I acknowledge it and talk about it openly and look at it. I'm 48. I've been anti-Black for 48 years. It forces you to see yourself as a real person. And that's all we're saying. So this book is one vehicle. This movie is one vehicle. Our dinners are one vehicle. 
that's lots of things, but it's not just the book or the movie. This is about us getting people on board to being honest. Yeah. And and this is what I always say when Black people know. We know. The part of the book where the white woman was like, Regina, did you know? Like, there's anti-black, like, that part that you put in there. I was just like, oh, my gosh. And like, what is it like to work with somebody who's anti-black? And it's just like, the point is, like, recognizing yourself as a whole person. And that includes flaws and things that you have to unlearn. So I definitely love that. And it's purposefully that we do this work together with a Black woman and a non-Black woman of color because... We are modeling what intersectional solidarity looks like. And they can't do their nonsense. They do. They try to pit us against each other every time. And we're like, no, we're we're here together. We people of color are fighting over scraps, okay? And and instead of fighting for our own seat at the table. We gotta come together. There's more of us than there are them. Exactly. And it is a tool of white supremacy to pit us against each yep. other and say, like, oh, well, that's not my always, fight when like always. we are all like fighting against always. white supremacy, including white people. The violence against Asian folks is against East Asian folks right now. I mean, there's always violence, right? Post 9-11, it was against South Asian people who look like me. I was at the World Trade Center that day because I was it, it, working at a law clinic right next door. I went back to law school as a third-year law student, and the East Asians were basically being like, we're not that Asian. And then during this pandemic, South Asians were like, we're not that kind of Asian. And then Hindu South Asians are like, oh, we're not Muslim. And I'm like, they can't tell the difference, and you're being Islamophobic. And and we all struggle with colorisms in our community. We know about colorism in the Black community. Same thing happens in the Asian community, you know, Filipino communities. Have you guys seen the new Black Panther? So the Mexican actor, right? He's amazing. He's been all over the place talking about how it's been, he was stunned that he got hired because he's very dark-skinned. And how if you look at TV on in Mexico, it's all white Everybody's people. white. Is white. <laughs> India, too. They still have on their billboards, it's like white people. Like, and when they develop the film, the photographs, they just overexpose Life. it. It comes out looking white. Well, that's why I'm so proud of Nigeria. They've done two things that are absolutely fabulous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have banned skin lightening, period. You cannot import those products into the country. Yep. And they have banned them using models for anything who are not Nigerian. I'm like, I love it. You go. You go. Yeah. yeah. I've heard actually a lot of bad about that. Oh, it's not like diverse. Yeah. And yeah. Like, I'm like, I don't know how people use the that's racist argument. It's not saying like we're not hiring white people. We're only hiring Nigerians. It's like the same thing if the people who value things that are made in America, when we export things out, we treat the people awful in other countries. It's a lot of different conversations about like representation and whose stories are we promoting and are we seeing those dominant stories as like the only story i get a magazine at my house and it is so full of white people every time i get it i get pissed i just immediately throw it in the trash and i want i had a white friend call him and say you need to make this more diverse. Well, can you tell us more about your race to dinner initiative? So after we had this experience with all the whites started just saying, we're going to do dinners. 
So white women self-select, they get in touch. We have a white woman resident, a resident white woman who does all the scheduling, talking to the host. She put together, these are the responsibilities. And we set up the dinner. They pay us before we show up. They pay our transportation and lodging. And we go in, we spend two hours with them. It's the simplest concept and the hardest thing on the planet for these white women. Yeah, because... After reading all these stories, you would think like all these white women spending all this money, like putting in all this effort would want to have the conversation. But a lot of them are just not ready. They do. They do. They, they do. And, but, you know, I think that they, so many of these women think that they're, quote, woke and allies and they march in ready to give us their civil rights resume. And we're like, we're not doing that today and get right to it. How are you racist? And it's like, whoa, you don't want to hear about how much money I gave to the ACLU last week. We're like, not really. And they don't get to opt out. We don't allow. No crying at the table. If you have to cry, the host prepares a room ahead of time and you take your ass in there and cry it out. Okay. Number two, you don't get to opt out. You have to talk about something you've thought, done, or said that was racist. And they always do. We had one last year in New York and the woman who spoke last said, when you all asked the question at the beginning, I would thought to myself, this is such a waste of time. I don't have anything. And she said, I've now listened to the seven. I've done all seven of those things and I have an eighth. So once they get started, they cannot stop. They've never done this before. It's like the most freeing thing. And Taylor, that's why this is so important. If you look back in history, In the United States, we've never had conversation about racism ever. I did a book event at the Boulder Bookstore where the University of Colorado and one of the former deans of the law school was there. And he said to me, Regina, can you think of any time in history that we've had honest? And I said, no. And he couldn't think of any either. That's really sad. And when there's talk about racism, it's always other people, right? Like. The Republicans are the racist. The people in the South, the men are the racist. It's always other, other, other. No, we are. Yeah, we are. Yeah. People make up systems. And if the system is racist, the people are racist. That's right. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Because it was built that way. As the country was. right. Intentionally. That's something else we don't allow. This All this DEI talk about unconscious bias. Bullshit. You know. Folks, quit. Microaggression, racial violence, unconscious bias, conscious racism, implicit bias, all the euphemisms, right? White fragility is white supremacy. White feminism is white supremacy. White privilege is white supremacy. We make up all these words to protect white feelings. White feelings, white supremacy. Wow. We are the Feminist Book Club, so I'm always like looking to recommend books for people. So what are you all currently reading? Right now, I am reading, and it's taken me a very long time because it's about this thick, The 1619 Project, okay? And one of the books that really impacted me was Hood Feminism. Yeah, that's a, that's a great book. I would say Patriarchy Blues by Fre- Frederick Joseph. I read that recently, and I loved it. It's so beautiful, and, and that's equally important, right? Deconstructing toxic masculinity for men. So I'm recommending that for every dude I know. Oh, I do love that. But like I, it, people who are crazy are the truth tellers. And I did quotations around crazy are the truth tellers. So I'll definitely add those yep. books 
to our show notes so people can check them out. But my final question is, where can people find you and your work? We have a website, racetodinner.com. We're on Instagram under Race to Dinner. We also have a website and a Instagram page for Deconstructing Karen, which drops on iTunes on Thanksgiving Day. Well, thank y'all so much for joining me in this conversation. Thanks. And we're telling white women, talk to your Karens. Mm-hmm. The okay. racist in your mm-hmm. family. The okay. racist in your mm-hmm. family. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank y'all again so much. Y'all can check okay. out all of the links in the show to what we talked about. Check out the book, White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better. Thanks for joining the Feminist Book Club. Do you love food and feminism? Then you will love decorating your home and filling your wardrobe with merch from Overseasoned. This colorful culinary brand features clever and bold artwork with cheeky slogans like Shuck the Patriarchy and Cabernet and Equal Pay. Shop t-shirts, aprons, kitchen towels, baby clothes, and more with these fun and empowering designs. Top sellers include Smashing My Food and the Patriarchy Baby Bib, Root for Women, Cozy Crew Neck, and the Culinary Goddess Apron. And if you're particularly fired up about the Supreme Court decision and who isn't, the Ice Cream for Reproductive Justice design is going to be just what you want to rock on a t-shirt or tote bag. These pieces have become cult favorites in the food world, with star TV chefs, home cooks, bakers, and foodies alike swearing by overseason merchandise. Nearly every product in the shop supports a nonprofit that's dedicated to bettering the lives of women, particularly those in marginalized communities. Not to mention that these pieces are highly functional as well as incredibly soft. And since Overseasoned outfits infants to adults, it makes a great gift for anyone in your life and adds conversation-starting flair to any ensemble. Go to overseason.com shop and use code FEMINIST to get 10% off of your order with Overseasoned. The greatest gift you can give this season is the gift of the bird. Flip'em the Bird is a clothing company bringing cleverness, wit, and a dash of curse words to people who need a good laugh. Flip'em the Bird is a small business in Minnesota that provides 14-day, no-shit, easy return policy, quality, earth-conscious products, and gives back through volunteer work and fundraising. After all, swearing is caring. For all your gift-giving needs, go right to flipemthebird.com, where Susie will get your bird flying in two to three days. When you don't have the words, your clothing should say it for you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, Red Woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh.